My job at that time was to help rich people not pay taxes. And I personally am a big fan of taxes. Like Oliver Wendell Holmes says, taxes are the prices we pay for civilization. I like having roads and I like having clean water. I like having schools and libraries. Like I'm a big fan of some of these things that taxes pay for. And my job was to help really wealthy people not pay taxes. And so as I remember that client complaining about this several hundred thousand dollar tax bill, I was just thinking about how many hungry kids that could feed and how many single moms that could provide childcare for so they could actually pick up more hours and buy coats for their kids for that winter. Right. And I, I began to realize I was just living in this big disconnect. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome Joy Slaybaugh to the show. Now, Joy just came across my screen. I don't even remember, Joy, admittedly, exactly how your name came across my screen. But whatever it was, I was like, oh, this, this. So she just finished her graduate degree in therapy. She's focused on internal family systems, which is something I've been reading a lot about. But she also worked at Vanguard Mutual Funds. And just in talking to her before the show started, she's got all kinds of other cool experiences and ideas. And so I'm so excited to have her on the show to talk about the intersection of therapy, personal finance, our own journey with money, and whatever else fun comes up. So Joy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ed. I'm really excited to be with you and your listeners today. Yeah, absolutely. So tell the listeners a little bit about your professional journey and where you've been and where you're at now. Sure. So I started actually worked my way through college working for a financial advisor. And that's how I ended up in the financial advisor field and eventually built a small independent financial planning practice. Moved from there to working for a really large asset manager as a financial advisor, also creating products and services for individuals around that are advice embedded in them also services for advisors, and eventually decided that I wanted to make a career change and do something that was going to be partnering with people who are on their healing journey. And so that's what led me to quitting a really lucrative job and going back to grad school, getting another degree, studying counseling, which as you mentioned, I just graduated with that degree. And along the way, I also got trained in IFS, which is a modality I really, really love. And so here I am now a therapist who has a CFP and all sorts of financial (laughs) designations and experiences. And I'm finding that there's opportunity to weave these two worlds together. That there is. And that was part of why I was so excited to find you is it's a small community of people that have traveled through professional training and personal finance as well as mental health counseling. And so I'm so glad to have found you and to be able to have this conversation because 
there's such a powerful intersection. And you were saying before the show started that you actually hired a psychologist at one point to help you with working with your clients and they introduced you to systems theory. So can you tell me a little bit about what you were seeing with your clients and their relationship with money and how hiring the psychologist helped you work with your clients more effectively? Sure. So I was noticing that there were some clients who were, one, really hard for me to work with. It was emotionally taxing for me to work with them. And they just weren't following my advice. It was really rational. It made a lot of sense for them to do this and they just weren't. And so I got curious and was wondering what's going on. So I hired this psychologist to help me understand what was happening. And as he introduced me to systems theory, everything made so much more sense. And that gave me a framework from which to approach clients in understanding what were the emotional issues that were present and how to address those. And it completely changed how I interact with financial clients. When someone would ask, like, should I buy gold or should I do this? Like, I knew that that was not the issue about buying gold or doing this or doing that. The issue was usually, I'm afraid of not having enough money. I'm afraid of being destined, right? There's like usually, some core emotion, a lot of times fear, not always, but a lot of times that. And so they gave me a model that I could use to address that core emotional need. And once we addressed that, then they were able to rationally engage on topics about their money and make decisions that would were rational and would help them. And that led to people following my advice a lot more. And then ultimately, of course, like having greater financial success because they were following <laughs> sound financial principles. It's easy to laugh about it today while we're having this fun interview, but this is really serious business and it, it's quite a journey to get to this place. And, and as, it, you were listen, as I was listening to you describe this, I was like, yep, that's exactly my journey, right? It's like, and this is, and that, why I share this is I want listeners to know is it's not a problem with you and it's really not a problem with financial planners. It's a problem with the training of financial planners. Financial planners are trained in a rational way of approaching working with money. And that's a good thing in many cases because they do learn sound principles of money management. The challenge is those principles of sound money management are not relevant for someone in emotional distress. I think it's great that the CFP board is starting to adjust the education approach and training and starting to recognize that psychology is actually a really important component of financial planning. This is wonderful, right? And especially as now there are algorithms that essentially manage the money and do a lot of what used to be the rational decision-making that requires financial advisors, but also opens up and enables financial advisors to do more of the consultative coaching and addressing these emotional issues. And yet, I don't know that all of the education programs are catching up or really have really caught up on that yet. But I'm, I think it's great that we're moving in that direction. I think you're exactly right. Is For people that are listening, this type of industry-level change is huge. And it's starting, but any type of industry-level change takes years, if not decades, to work its way through the system. Working in the Financial Therapy Association, and I continue to get reminded of this, is that we're not working on change at a year level. I mean, we're making changes year by year. But this is about really continuing the profession to shift and professionalize the field of financial planning. There's a long history that listeners probably don't care a whole lot about, but right, 
I mean, the industry of financial services has gone through major evolutions over the last 100 plus years and our understanding of what needs to happen. And I think as a society, we're kind of hopefully communicating back to the industry, hey, what we need is changing too. And it's interesting what you're talking about, Ed. It hits on a couple of themes, right? One, this idea that structural change is slow and it takes decades. And we may not see it in our lifetime. And if we're working toward change, like I believe we need to accept that it might not happen in my lifetime. It might be the next generation or the one after that where the fruits are actually realized and like needing to be okay with that. And it also gets to this piece about access and the issues that we all have around money. So many of them originate with our families and different families have different relationships with money, different attitudes towards money. And this is where all these intersecting identities come into play about class, about race, about gender, about sexual orientation. And when financial advisors are purely looking at the rational piece of investing, like all of that gets lost and they're not even aware of the many layers of nuance through which people are are viewing this decision about money. And so I love that as a industry, we're moving more toward more recognition of that. I think there's a long way to go as well. And I think as we, as folks are equipped, maybe it might not be financial advisors, more financial therapists, such as you, or like folks who deal with money, such as me, then that's where we can help people to recognize like there's not a problem. They don't have a problem. There's nothing wrong with them, right? It's just recognizing that these these lenses exist and seeing them for what they are and understanding how they impact this relationship with money. Yeah, I think that's so valuable is one, depathologizing it and taking some of the shame out of it. That there's something especially intrinsically wrong with you when it comes to money. No, there is not anything intrinsically wrong with any of us related to money, but all of us have complex experiences and histories and we bring multiple identities to the relationship with money. And so I think yeah. this is where that the training and the lens of internal family systems probably comes adjacent, if not directly overlaps this. So can you tell listeners a little bit about what is internal family systems and how does it help you as a therapist to understand and work with people and the challenges that they're facing? Sure. So internal family systems, often shorten it to IFS just because it's a bit of a mouthful is an idea that we all have parts within us, many different parts within us. And that might sound a little funny at first, but just think about the last time you were faced with a decision, maybe like what to do with your day off. And maybe part of you wanted to lounge around to do nothing. Another part of you wanted to mow the lawn and another part of you wanted to visit with some friends, right? Right. So we have these different parts that want different things inside us. And we see it in really innocuous aspects of life, like how to spend a day off. We also see it in really important aspects of life, like how to spend money or how to, like who we want to be in relationship with. And so the idea of the concept of IFS is really approaching this idea that we have parts and accepting it and accepting these parts for what they are and not picking and choosing that this is a good part, that's a bad part, but recognizing that we have these parts within us they exist. They are all trying to help us in the best way that they know how. Even if sometimes they get us to do things that we might say are harmful, like gambling or addictive behaviors, part is still trying to help us. And so IFS is this idea of bringing compassion to people and our parts 
and being curious and trying to understand from the perspective of that part, what it's trying to do for you and why. And many times as we befriend these parts and get to understand their stories is when we see parts relax. And this is when you start to see shifts. And instead of like brute force trying to change our behavior, we see this gentle relaxing and change starts to happen without maybe us even realizing that it's happening. And it's just like this ease that gets introduced. It reminds me that I hear some version of this quite often is I have to increase my uh, willpower or self-discipline around money. That's the only way that I'm going to get better with money. And I I think willpower and self-discipline like mm, are not so hot. And that I've grown into that, but it's this idea of being compassionate with yourself. I can hear my, maybe it's a part of me screaming. No, 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 not compassion. Please not compassion, right? It's probably the over-functioning protector part that's like, no, no, we must be responsible and disciplined here. But when we can recognize that we have these different parts of us, that they're all welcome, that they're all serving a role, sometimes in exaggerated ways. But I think my experience with IFS and doing parts type work is when you talk directly to that part and you ask them, what are you trying to accomplish? What are you? What role are you trying to fulfill? Really interesting responses start to come forward. Have you found that to be your case? Absolutely. And I love the point you raise about this idea that we have these parts that want to manage us, right? And have this, make us be disciplined and willpower. And I have a part, for example, that really hates to spend money. <laughs> and we'll be like, no, I don't actually need that. I can, I'm fine without it. And this part will convince me to go a very long time without spending money, except for very essential things sometimes. And so we have these parts that might try to like control other parts, but how do we accept them? And also accept that we have, maybe have parts that want to be indulgent and want to just spend money on something that is frivolous, which is what my manager part calls it. <laughs> yeah. And, and as we befriend them, and we might notice that there's like this tension between them. And sometimes it's like, the battle of the parts. Like, I want to spend money. No, I can't spend money. And feel this tension back and forth. Also see this in relationships too, right? Some folks have one part that's stronger than others and you see this tension. As we can befriend though and understand what the parts are trying to do for us, then that's where things start to unravel. So like for me, unravel and get easier, I should say. So I have the part that doesn't want to spend money. And then I have a part occasionally that does want to indulge. Oh yeah. And it wants to like enjoy the creature comforts. And it's like, you deserve it. You work really hard and you deserve this. And this other manager part will like try to guilt me. We're like, no, think about the environment and like, don't need to spend money on these things. Right. And so trying to befriend and get curious is where then these can relax and they can be in harmony. And almost like they, sometimes it's about negotiating a compromise between these parts. Other times it's just, they just relax and be like, oh yeah, I, I see that point of, we're actually trying to do the same thing. We're trying to keep you healthy and happy. And okay, yeah, this works. <laughs> I love that. So how do you think that connects back to childhood? And if you're comfortable, would you mind sharing some of your own childhood experiences with money that may help listeners kind of connect some of the dots of, of how this all kind of comes to be? Sure. So I was raised in a family that was experienced a lot of different socioeconomic classes during my childhood. And I was born into a family. They were, my parents were self-described hippies and they had a life of poverty by choice. 
There's no electricity in the house. Grew their own food. It was somewhat extreme. And then eventually they rejoined society and there was, they were, things were pretty tight. And I think we would, I could say they were lower income, eventually working class. And then by the time I was a teenager, they were middle-class. So that definitely influenced my thinking about money because I remember when we did not have much at all and I had shoes, wore shoes with holes in them. And so that influence has influenced me and my parts that like, I have a part that doesn't believe money will last that it may be, things may be good now, but the lean times are just around the corner. And so that part, it's really important to that part that I save money and that I have a, a nest egg so that I'm taking care of if the lean times do come. Right. So I share that to, to describe a little bit about like how what we experience can influence our parts attitudes and then the parts attitudes, how it can influence our behavior toward money today. No, I really think you create a nice through line and connection there. Appreciate that because I think that that it's we're working kind of at a conceptual level, trying to get an idea across, but then we're trying to get it at an applied level. What does this mean? And where does this come from? And poverty by choice, that's an interesting word combination. I feel like I've heard it, but it feels fresh to me today. What's your sense on poverty by choice? Why do people do poverty by choice? Like, Wow. Well, I think, I mean, when my parents did this, it was that was like the early 80s so there was still enough of like the hippie counterculture influence right that was influencing them i think which was part of it i feel like today though we see some we see some similar flu influence but also different right it's what i see is folks who are really concerned about the environment and what consumerism is doing to the planet right and how do i opt out of that right also folks who are really concerned about capitalism and how dehumanizing it is and wanting to opt out in ways that where they can in ways that they can. And so that's, that's, those are the ones that I'm more aware of where people are choosing to downsize, choosing to reduce how much they spend, how much they engage in capitalism and both making money as well as spending money. Wow. This is so powerful. Connecting for me personally, one level I've I've had that concern about the environmental impact of my own consumption patterns concern about what is it, how does wealth corrupt or capitalism become problematic? And so I kind of, as I became more aware of these realities, like I found myself retreating from wanting to participate in earned income and accumulating assets or even thinking about it. And it, it got, it went deeper and deeper and deeper. And it was a semi-conscious choice, but I think it's, it's, this human dilemma, I guess, we have about how do we process the information that we're in? How do we see ourselves in relationship to it? And culture can really push. And you know, for me, there was also a, a religious layer that was also kind of anti-capitalism, anti-wealth, and that poverty was a more holy position to hold than having. And so there's, mm-hmm. there's talking about multiple identities. There's just so many pieces that all come into play yeah. in our, our relationship with money. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. 
If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. And I also want to add into this as we're talking about poverty by choice is just recognizing that for those who choose poverty, what a privilege that is to be able to choose that I'm going to spend less, I'm going to earn less. And because the reality is that there are millions of Americans who live on a dollar a day or less, which is like you would think, how is that possible? And yet, and yet it is. I was, was reading this heartbreaking book about it, about the folks highlighting different folks in America who live on a dollar a day or less. And that's not, that number of people is not nearly as small as you would hope it is. So while there is poverty by choice, there also is extraordinary poverty in this country. And I want to, I like, I want to honor and, and name that there, you know, are many people who are in extreme poverty in this country and they have no choice about that. Yeah, this raises really interesting questions, doesn't it, about the nature of wealth? What do we do with wealth? I think before the show, you were talking about kind of some of your own internal working through or struggling. You had risen through the ranks of the wealth management world and were working with top 1% of 1% and that that evoked some some stuff inside of you. Would you mind sharing a little bit about, about that and how that experience has led you to where you're at now too? Yeah, it was a gradual process. When I started working with this at this firm, I was really excited. This was a firm with great benefits, and it was a ticket to financial security for me. Right, and that was something considering my background that was really important to me. Sure. And once, as I reached financial security, I had the privilege of being able to look around and be curious about this world that I was now living in. That was very foreign to me working with people who were primarily upper middle class, everyone would take multiple international vacations a year, just this this level of ease and privilege in their life that I did not grow up with. Right. And thus I was looking at it with very new fresh eyes, and not just the people I worked with but also the clients that I worked with, individuals as well as institutions, right? Institutions controlled by very wealthy individuals. And I just noticed, I noticed the client who was complaining about the $300,000 tax bill. And I was just thinking to myself, like, that seems like a really amazing problem to have. <laughs> <laughs> to have a six-figure tax bill. Right. Like, oh, to be so lucky. Right. And it, I think a big accelerant for me was when I, I got my first graduate degree, which was a master's in tax law. And as I was studying tax code and all these Supreme Court takes, cases about tax law, I saw just how much privilege is written into the tax code and how many special interests are carved out in the tax code. And that was really what started, I think, this awakening for me of realizing this is not a level playing field, frankly. And my job at that time was to help rich people not pay taxes. And I personally am a big fan of taxes. Like Oliver Wendell Holmes says, taxes are the prices we pay for civilization. I like having roads and I like having clean water. I like having schools and libraries. Like I'm a big fan of some of these things that taxes pay for. And my job was to help really wealthy people not pay taxes. And so as I remember that client complaining about the several hundred thousand tax, tax bill, I was just thinking about how many hungry kids that could feed. And how many single moms that could provide childcare for so they could actually pick up more hours 
and buy coats for their kids for that winter. Right. And I, I began to re- realize I was just living in this big disconnect. And then hearing the chief economist at the firm I worked talk about how income inequality was undermining fundamentals of the economy, it dawned on me like in- income inequality is harming all of us except for the few that are winning, which I know sounds like an incredibly obvious statement. But then it kind of made a challenge for me. So where do I want to be on that? Do I want to be contributing to this problem? Right. Or not? And then you like, I mean, it'd be great to opt out, but it kind of feels to me you're either contributing toward it or you're working to, to unwind these institutional biases that create and foster income inequality. And so that was the, what started me on a path of recognizing I don't think this is really in alignment with my values any longer. So what is? Joy, there's so much in that. And I appreciate your willingness to share this. For me, it's very vulnerable information when people share their deeply held beliefs, recognizing that there's a wide variety of people with different views and some are would be very antagonistic to the view that you're sharing. And so please, listeners, with due respect, if you disagree with Joy, please be kind. Don't send her stuff saying, well, this is ridiculous because she's owning her own position in her own journey. And I think that's a real act of integrity. And this going from being outside the world of wealth to working your way deeper and deeper into the world of wealth, so much so that you get a graduate degree in tax law and you start to see just how wealth is really structured in our society and it flabbergasts you, my word, that it, it brings you back out to what do I do about this reality? And I think there are so many elements of this that feel familiar to me where you know the little boy in me looked at the wealthy as aspirational and the place to get to and achieve, which I think is true mm-hmm. for so many of us. And it represents these mm-hmm. good things in, in the child's mind. And as we mature into adulthood, we start to realize all is not well or perfect with wealth. And what does it mean? Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, my hope is that we would all wake up to a much deeper reflective stance around money, meaning how do my decisions trickle through and impact others? How are there structures and systems in place? And mm-hmm. your courageous act to say, I love taxes, encourages me to go ahead and own that too. I think that I do love taxes too. I, there's, yes, there's that part of me that doesn't want to pay tax and I want to pay as little as possible. But when I think about what are the consequences of tax minimization strategy, it's at a real expense. And yeah. it, it may be a crude analogy, but it's like a lot of companies that used to say, well, we want to reduce costs at all all benefits. We'll just dump the stuff in the river and we won't worry about it. And it's like, yeah, today maybe that's not a problem, but it's what happens one year, two years, five years, 10 years later when the water source is completely polluted. And so having a fair and just tax system is very essential for a just society. And we can all stand to be more reflective on that. I really appreciate your thoughtfulness and, and your call for compassion as well. And, and I want to extend compassion to folks who like, don't want to pay taxes and don't believe in taxes. And I can appreciate why you feel that way. I was also in that place at one point in my life. And, and I, have, yeah, I have a lot of compassion for where that may come from. Of course, I don't know the stories of all of your listeners, but I can bring compassion to that. And even though we might have different positions on it now, I do have a lot of compassion for folks that really want to make sure that any money that they have goes to things that align with their values. And I recognize that you don't really have control on that with taxes, right? It goes into this big pot and then it goes a lot of places. <laughs> you don't have control on that. I do want to honor those, honor those differences. 
Yeah, and I think you highlight such an important part of that, right? Is because there's a part of healthy human psychology where we want to be able to control and influence the outcome of our work. And money feels mm-hmm. like often a, an extension of that. And it's part of our own self-advocacy mm-hmm. to feel like we're shaping and influencing. This is where it goes from deep psychology into political ideology and back about how we think about how best to distribute assets, right? And it, and it plays out on the large global stage, on the national stage, on the local stage, and in the family system. Mm-hmm. Families have to decide about how much are we going to support each other? How much are we going to make each member responsible for themselves? Right, which is that mm-hmm. kind of rod that we're we face at all the levels of society, mm-hmm. and I often wonder about how people's childhoods with money, with control over money, with influence over money, whether they have autonomy and choice in that, or whether they've been dictated to, shapes their later adult financial ideologies. Yeah, and this is really prompting me to reflect on how heritage plays a role. And I think about how, like, my, my heritage is European. Amish specifically is my background. And European-American values, so these European values that we've inherited, is this idea of individualism. Right. And often, like, preserving assets is a big piece of this culture. Yeah. And that there is value in that, right? And there also is harm in that. Right. There are other cultural heritages that come from a place of abundance and let's create abundance. Like we can make this pie bigger for all of us. And I think it's important to recognize these different values that exist and are influencing us. And as we recognize that, that gives us the option of, do we want to hold on to this value or do we want to introduce different values? And that has been part of my journey as well is like, there are so many things I value about my Amish upbringing. Like I know how to pickle things, for example. (laughs) (laughs) And I know how to make delicious bread. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) My grandparents were raised Amish. And I really value the thriftiness that came with this heritage. And I also recognize how that can lead to this scarcity mindset. And it doesn't have to be like that, right? We can envision a world where there is plenty, where every child has enough to eat where everyone has financial safety, physical safety, and security. That is possible. I don't know. That's one of the things that that gets me excited. And that's a big reason why I made this change to being a therapist is this belief that if I can partner with a few people on their journey of healing, that they can live a life of freedom, plenty, and abundance in every aspect of the world, not just money and wealth. Right then that to me feels like a life well lived. Mm. And financial planning is highest, highest state that that's part of the job of financial planning too, right? Is to get people to reflect on what is a life well lived and how do we use our assets and income to help facilitate that. And, and for, for many of us, I would think, is to have a bigger impact on society. Mm-hmm. And so, and at the same time, that's the therapist, like the therapist gets to do that and is expected to do that. I don't think, financial planner is expected to do that in the same kind of way. Mm -hmm. I hope that that changes or that we move that forward some, but, you know, I want to kind of come back to something else that we haven't talked a lot about, but this is the healthy love and money show. And I think about couples and money an awful lot. And so I'm curious from your perspective, what do you see couples struggling with around money and working collaboratively together? And 
how can couples move more towards working collaboratively together around their finances? Because right when we, I mean, if we just look through the lens of gender and gender doesn't explain it all, but it's, man, is it a big piece when it comes to money? Yeah. I love that question, Ed. I think about this a lot, right? This is the intersection of gender, money, power, politics, and the kind of race brings all this stuff together. And I think for in our culture, money often represents power. Right. Not always, but often. And I think in many, for many of us, money represents power as well as other things as well. Right. And so I see, I see with couples, I feel like I see that a lot. This money represents power. Who earns? Right impacts who gets more or less say on how the money is spent. Yeah. And by dint of that, like whose opinion matters more. And so it's an argument about money, but it's not an argument about money. It's an argument about power. It's an argument about control, about respect, about autonomy, about so much more than money. And it gets all labeled money. (laughs) (laughs) And the focus is on money. Right. But the actual argument is so much deeper than just the dollars. Do you ever think it's an argument over intimacy? Like being known, being accepted for who you are? Wow. That is a really interesting question. I love it. So you're saying the idea that we're arguing about, can I show up the way I am, who I am? Right. Even though, for example, maybe I don't make much money. Right. Can I still be seen and loved and valued for who I am? not just from what my purchasing power is. Yes, that's right. And maybe in the spirit of IFS is like, can all my parts show up and be accepted and understood here as we navigate money together? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is where I love IFS for stuff like this, that it gives people the plurality that there can be, we can accept that like... Yes, I have this part who wants to be valued. Yes, I have this part that wants to have control over the money. Yes, I have this part that feels guilty me because I don't make as much as you do. Yes, I have this part that feels resentful because you make so much more money than I do. Oh. That we have all these different parts that feel different ways and we don't have to attach to one and we don't have to reject any of them. We can acknowledge that they exist and they're here and honor them and bring harmony that we don't have to let one or more run the show, if you will. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that that piece that you just shared because I, I think as I listen to you name those different parts and some of their feelings is that resentment that you make more, which is like, that's one that's gotten me hung up more times than I care to admit to. And when I feel that resentment that my wife makes more than me and has higher social status, this is mostly contrived in my mind, but there is some cultural truth to it. A doctor, in, at least in my mind and in most culture standards, trumps a master's degree, trumps a bachelor's degree, even three master's degrees in my mind and in culture's mind, you still, there's a status given to doctor, right? And that has been one of my biggest rubbing stones to work through. And when I go to that place of resentment, it's not good for me. It's not good for my wife. Mm. So, but like from that parts perspective saying that is a part of me, I can continually work with and be curious about. And I do know it's tied to male gender identity and the socialization that I'm supposed to be the provider. And so even though my value system says, great, women can make as much money as men, if not more, no problem. Women can be highly educated more than men, no problem, values. But from a lived and parts perspective, there's a part of me that really struggles with that. 
Yeah. And I, I really respect your courage and in naming that and being public in like, publicly sharing that. And like, what's coming up for me as you share this is, is, is curiosity. Like how might you honor this part? Like if, the, if this part does believe that maybe you're again, just this part, not all of you, or this one part might be that you're lesser. You're right. You're yeah. less because our culture tells you you're lesser if you're not the bringing home the bacon. Right? right. And so this part has this belief that about you because of this. And like, how do you, how do you honor that, that tender, that, like that part that, that feels really tender about that? Mm. Well, this is unexpected, but I'll share this and, and I'll stay in my, another IFS word is I'll stay in myself, right? The core self that can manage and be with all this. But what I'll do after the show is show up for that part. And I have actually a large overstuffed teddy bear to the side of my desk. You can't see that. But I'll probably be going there and, and working with... Because what I'm knowing at a deep intuitive level is that's that child part, that little boy that watched his daddy go off to work and go home and make them more money. And I mean, my dad never held that over my mom's head explicitly, but I'm sure it had some impact in their psychology and their dance. So, you know, I think... But this is... I share all this stuff and especially with someone that... There's such a, a warm presence to you and a trust that I, I can also share a little bit. I share this publicly though too, so people can know what's going on inside because unless I describe some of what's going on inside of me, it's very hard for other people to know what's going on inside of them. We may have we may not have language or the confidence to say like this is happening, but when I wave my hand, you and I can both see that. But when I have a thought about who I am in relationship to my wife and money, unless I put language to it, you have no idea that that's going through my head. So I think this is why having these types of conversations, I appreciate your vulnerability today and some of your thought processes that have been primed and worked through. And I think it takes people being honest and courageous to, to say like, here's how my, I've thought about these things. Here's how I've changed my thinking. And I just, I really respect Ed, you being willing to do that work with yourself to recognize that you have that part that feels that way. And I think about how I think there are a lot of people that feel that way. And when we ignore that feeling, we start to see behaviors like, well, I'm going to compensate for that by being a workaholic to make sure I make more, right? Or at least as much. Yeah. And then what that does to your family life, does it does to your relationship, all these different yeah. you know, spheres. I just give that as one example. There are so many ways we can, oh, yeah. adaptive be- behavior can come up around that. So I just think it takes so much courage and I really respect you being a, being willing to model yeah. for whomever is listening this compassion for yourself and willingness to see what is within you and accept and be with these parts. Well, I appreciate that. And I think this is part of what I, I'm so happy when it happens on the show is that people also get to see like a mini snippet of what kind of a therapeutic relationship looks like. This was a podcast interview. But you were very much therapeutic for me and around a money topic. And that's something that people are still trying to get their head around. What does financial therapy mean or look like? And I think that this was a micro moment of financial therapy. And so you know, I just want to name that and say kudos to you for having the skill and presence to just show up and track and, and be there. And I thank you for that. So with that in mind, I mean, Joy, we could talk. I can tell for hours and hours about all this stuff. There's just so much to cover. But if people said, you know, wow, I really like Joy. I like what she's saying. I like for her to help me. What's the best way for people to be in touch with you? 
I think the easiest way is to go to my website, www.joyinliving.life. And you can see more about me. There's a contact me. You can set up a time for us to connect and talk and learn more. And I really love talking with people about issues of money and sex, two really personal topics that are kind of taboo in our culture and yet often intertwined and woven together. Oh, <laughs> and I really love talking about both of them. You had to open the sex door at the end. Yes, love, money, and sex do go intertwined. And since you opened the door, I'm going to make the ask. Maybe we, you'd be willing to come back on the show and we can talk about that intersection and, and how we fold in. Absolutely. Sexuality and sex. It would be an honor. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for now, Joy, and we will talk again soon. Sounds good. Thank you. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.